Morning. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. But I'm actually more interested this morning in who you are. And that's a big question. Who are you? Like, it comes up an accusation, right? Like, if you're breaking into somebody's house, that's what I would say. Who are you? What are you doing in here? But broader than that, like, there's a lot of different answers we can get from that question. Who are you? Well, maybe I'll give you my name. But maybe only my first name, because I don't know you, so I don't want you knowing enough about me. Or maybe someone says, who are you? And I say, well, I'm a father. I'm a husband. What else makes up my identity? Who am I? Maybe it's the work that I do. There's a lot of things that go into who we are, how we might answer the question of what our identity actually is. And one of the things I think we're going to find in the scripture today is a pretty cool identity or a pretty cool answer to the question of who are you? And we find that ultimately in the answer to the question to who is Jesus. So that's what we're going to hit today. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive right into it. Father God, I love you. I thank you for the time that you've given us today to come together as your people in your name. And uh, I just pray that you would guide our hearts and our minds to hear from you. Um, I don't chuck whatever comes out of my mouth. Help people to hear what it is that you want them to hear. And uh, may we not only take it in, but uh, help us to live it out. So I pray for that. I pray you would guide, uh, guide my effort here and, uh, and guide that uh, of those folks that are listening, Lord, that we would, uh, that we would hear directly from you and, and your word. In your heavenly name I pray. Amen. Here's the scripture we're looking at today. We're in Matthew chapter 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And a voice from heaven, excuse me, uh, heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Two things I want to hit out before um, we kind of start parsing that out that I want you to keep in mind. First of all, Matthew is writing a story. He's telling a story, and he's telling a very specific story in a very specific way. You're going to notice this through all the guys, uh, the gospel writers. There's a reason their stories are a little bit different, or things come in a different order, all right? They're not mixing up the facts, but they have an aim through which the story that they're telling. They want you to see some certain things. Matthew is building something that I think we're going to investigate a little today, and you're going to see through the rest of his book. All right? So one of the things I want to encourage you is to, is you can read the Bible for facts. That's true. But it's coming to it in a way that the person that was reading in the first century wouldn't also be coming to it. See, we're uncomfortable with things that aren't delineated facts. Okay? Here's this. Here's this. Here's this. That's how we want it. Our our, uh, post-enlightenment mind wants things laid out, and we want a linear timeline. Right? This is what happened when... Time after time. That's how we digest things. Um, Coming to Matthew's story, to the people that he would have originally been telling it to, it's not that they're not concerned with that, but they're not as concerned with that as we are. They expect to see God acting in cycles. They expect the things to come up again and again. They also expect to see things in stories. They, they, They understand that certain facts, the way that they're arranged, are pointing you to a bigger truth than what is even on the page. All right, so I, I'm asking you to be open to that. Um, it's okay to read Bible as, as literature. They're writing in that way sometimes. Okay? Uh, the second thing was, allow symbols to peel like an onion. Again, a second thing that we run into is we want something to mean one and only thing. 
And if it doesn't mean that thing, or if it's called into question what it means, then it may not be true, because how could it be two things at once? We wrestle with that. It's a modern mind issue. Again, the readers in Matthew's time aren't running into this problem. Things get to breathe a little bit. It's okay for them to be more than one thing. And we need to be open to that too. It doesn't just have to be one thing. In fact, um, reading the Bible and allowing those symbols to breathe a little and to be more than one thing, it's, it's a very rich and rewarding experience and shows you the depth of otherwise what God has uh, given to us to understand. It's very cool. So be open to that as well as we go through the scripture today and through the rest of Matthew. So what I think Matthew is building for us here in the first part of Matthew is he's trying to show us the identity of who we're dealing with. See, we were introduced to Jesus as a baby. And in the middle of chapter two, he starts bringing in some, some other players, other people that are involved in Jesus's life. And the thing is, their identity is important. We need to know who people are because we need to know what to do with them when we meet them. It, it changes how you react to things knowing who someone is. As a matter of fact, if, if, if I were walking down the street, or someone told me a story about a guy walking down the street, and then some other guy pulls up in a car, takes the guy off the street, binds him, carries him away, and locks him somewhere against his will, that sounds like kidnapping, doesn't it? Unless the guy is a what? A police officer. His identity matters, does it not? If someone were to tell me a story and say, hey man, someone came into church today and, and kissed your wife, I feel like that guy's going to lose his face. Unless that story is about me, and then it's okay. Our identity matters, and the identity of who we're dealing with in Jesus' story in Matthew, it matters too. And so what Matthew is building for us is he's saying, here's who you're going to be dealing with. And to be honest, we're going to be dealing with these guys throughout the whole book. So heads up. We first are introduced to, outside of, uh, outside of Jesus, we're introduced to Herod. This is King Herod. There are a number of Herods. Uh, I like talking about lots of Herods, by the way. So like, if you want to talk Herods, I'm your man. Corner me. Um, so this is King Herod. This is, is uh, um, Herod the Great. And uh, we're introduced to him primarily so that we can understand what type of political threat Jesus is. Because he is concerned when the wise men are coming up about who this person is that is going to be uh, king over the Jewish nation. That is a threat to Herod. Herod, by the Roman Senate, was deemed king of the Jews. So if there is another king of the Jews, that's a problem for King Herod. And he reacts how you would, now it's not a moral uh, reaction, but it's an understandable one to hold on to his power. What does he say? If, the, if someone is coming in like this, kill them all. Kill the kids under two so that I don't have this problem. Okay? This, Jesus being a political threat, continues to pass on even to his kids. Herod had uh, three kids that are otherwise biblically attached. Uh, you have Herod Archelaus, Herod Antipas, who's the guy that beheads John the Baptist, and uh, Philip the Tetrarch. And uh, we even see this in, in Scripture in Matthew 2. They're coming back. They fleed from Herod, okay? And they're going to come back from Egypt. And it says, but when he heard, this is Joseph, heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. See, it's still a threat. It was still going to be a problem if a king, proclaiming king of the Jews, shows up. In this area. And the thing was, it's right to be afraid of Herod Archelaus. Herod Archelaus was a mean sucker. He took the throne when he was 17 years old. He ruled for eight years, and Rome eventually replaced him because he was so violent. Uh, Rome has a, uh, a tenet of Rome as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Rome kept peace through violence. 
And it was your job, if you're running a, uh, one of the, the territories of Rome, is to keep the peace. We're gonna run, Herod Antipas is going to run into that problem too with John. But if you don't keep the peace, Rome will dispatch from you. Archelaus, in his attempt to keep peace, caused a lot of violence. And they eventually replaced him. That's where we get procurators, where Rome has taken someone to rule on behalf and, as opposed to the, uh, the Herod sons. And that's where you get a guy like Pontius Pilate. He comes in because Rome says, that guy's too violent. We've got to put someone in there who can keep some peace. So that's how we're introduced to Herod. We also get introduced to John the baptizer. Uh, around 30 years have passed between the time that we uh, were talking about uh, Herod and the time we meet John. And the, the Bible really doesn't give the impression that they knew that Jesus had escaped. So for all practical purposes, they think they've dispatched with the problem of the Jewish king. But we are introduced to John in an interesting way. Matthew 3, 1 says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is who he is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, to be honest with you, I love the last sentence primarily because I like the thought of like a wily John the Baptist picking bugs out of the air and and honey in his teeth. Uh, And I still love that last sentence, but for different reasons. Because one of the things that Matthew is doing here is we don't know a lot about John, but that last sentence actually told us a ton about who, what John's identity is. Check this out. Look from uh, 2 Kings 1. Starting in verse 7, uh, King uh, Ahaziah, the king of Moab, had fallen through some, some lattice, and uh, he was afraid he was going to die. So he sent a guy to kind of figure out, to, to get word whether he was going to die or not. And this is the question he asked his servant that comes back. He says, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things, that I was going to die? They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. That's a distinct dude. And he said, it is Elijah, the Tishbite. I like the king, right? He's like, I know that guy anywhere. Letter of the belt, hair, Elijah. Now that's important for our identity of John. Why? Because what was Elijah? He was a prophet of God. He brought God's message. What is John? His identity is, is bigger, right? He's not just a guy dunking people in the wilderness. Wilderness was a good key, but what he's wearing is important. We know more about John. That's his identity. It's important to how we deal with him. Who else do we know? We know the Pharisees and Sadducees. In chapter 3, we get a picture of them through John's reaction to them. Uh, this is not good news. He's pretty firm with those guys. Um, we get to know them by John saying, who told you to flee from the coming wrath? He wasn't even going to tell them. There's a, there's a chance out of this thing. Who even warned you about that? That's what we get to know about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're on the other side of whatever John is bringing. That's our introduction to them. They're going to continue to be an issue. We're going to see them sparring with Jesus throughout the whole book. In our introduction, the identity of who these guys are, Matthew is establishing that for a reason. If John is to believe they are unrepentant and they're elitist, believing that their lineage itself is what's important to God, that's going to keep running up into Jesus. Number four, this is, this is sometimes easy to miss because there's not a name, there's not a title to them. But we also get introduced to the identity of the people. Now, I want you to think about this. When, when you're talking a, the Jewish nation... 97% of them okay, don't own their own land anymore. The types of taxes and things that are coming down from Rome end up being that they, they have to leverage themselves. They have to sell their land. They have to borrow to be able to plant, to keep enough for themselves, to sell, to trade. They're in a, they're in a bad spot. They don't have the free time to be wandering out for some wild hippie in the wilderness to get dunked for a revolution that could get them killed. 
They have no time for this unless it's important. What do we know about those people? What has pushed someone to say, I'm willing to risk my life, my family's life, my crop, my living to go out here and be a part of whatever John the baptizer is doing? We need to recognize the mind frame of the people. It's important to their identity and see the reaction to these groups of people as we go through Matthew. So Matthew, he's introducing us to people. These are the people that we're dealing with. This is our identity. And then we come to the baptism of Jesus. So what I think is happening here is that these introductions don't stop. I don't think we know Jesus yet. We've heard about him, but we also poured some stuff into that, right? Like we knew the birth of Jesus before we read the birth of Jesus in Matthew. He's given us some information about Jesus, but I don't know that we know him yet. We don't know fully who we're dealing with. John has given some clues. The birth gave some clues, but I think his baptism solidifies what we know or think we know about who Jesus is. What is his identity? And in reaction to that, what then is the identity of those who follow? So the question then is, what is his baptism? What does it show us about the identity of Jesus? Here we go. One, uh, first of all, we are shown that he is a king. He is a king. Think of the baptism as an anointing of the king. When, when, uh, when King David or King Saul were anointed in Israel, um, they would pour oil over them as a sign of this is the guy. This is who will be the king. Um, we see this in 1 Samuel 16. This is the anointing of David. Um, Sam was there to uh, identify who it is that God wants to be king. And uh, he's talking to the father, Jesse, and he says, are all your sons here? Because he's looked through everybody and he hasn't found the guy that he was supposed to find. And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and appointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. That sound familiar? Jesus is baptized, anointing, comes up out of the water. Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. We get, the, we get a picture. This is hard for some of you, I know, like factual. I get it. Let it breathe. We get a picture of Jesus as the king. He's being anointed as the king of Israel. That's a big deal. Um, this is reinforced in Acts 10. It says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, for he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He's a king. This is King Jesus coming out of the water. That will continue to be a problem in the life of Herod. That will continue to be a problem for proclaiming such a thing in Rome. It's part of his identity. He is King Jesus. Secondly, from his baptism, we get to see that Jesus is the Messiah. And uh, this pulls from uh, what God says right as he is coming up out of the water. It says, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There are a couple Old Testament scriptures that I think will help parse this out. The first one is Psalm 2. And it goes like this. Why do the nations rage? Hey, see if you can identify some of the guys we've been talking about so far. This is crazy cool. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. We have Herod. 
and the rulers take counsel together. We have some Pharisees and Sadducees against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill that will be fulfilled in revelation. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like the potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Uh, we see this, this mode continued in Isaiah 42. It says, Behold my servant, whom I am uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, and who I am well pleased. That's kind of the echo you have there. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now think, about, think of the guys we've met so far, and think of how they might react to the knowledge of there being a, a Messiah, a king. See, this is inspiration for the people that are gathering or that are willing to be in the wilderness with John. It's inspiration for the people. He's bringing forth justice. People that are willing to make those sacrifices that we talked about, they long for justice. To be outside of the oppression that they find themselves under. This is trouble for the religious elite. This is a description of a Messiah that seems to have no hint of a physical violent battle against God's enemies. Be sure that's what they were looking for. The Pharisees and Sadducees were anticipating a time when the Messiah would come and he would physically be a king on the earth, holding it over God's enemies. That's what they expected. God will fulfill every prophecy that they're pulling that from, but he will fulfill it in the way that he always intended to. This is bad news for them and they will continue to butt up against Jesus throughout Matthew for that same reason. His justice seems to be directed at them. Remember, he said he brings the Holy Spirit and fire. That's judgment. And that's pointed at them. This will be trouble for Herod. See, the Messiah seems concerned about the oppressed, the bruised reed, the faintly burning wick. The kings of the world have been put on notice. The Messiah is here. That is going and continues to be a problem. Proclaiming a kingdom inside someone else's kingdom is a bad move. It may just get you crucified. Other identity from Jesus' baptism. We find his identity as a leader of a new people. And we see this in the fulfillment of and parallels to Moses leading people out of Egypt. Let me show you these. I, I, I think these are pretty cool. Um, so first of all, look, comparing the times between Moses and Jesus. Israel is under an oppressive rule. As far as Israel con- is concerned, they have continued to be under oppressive rule ever since the Babylonians took them into captivity. They've never been out. They've had hints of that with some rebellions, but like they've never been out of oppression. Um, under Moses, they were under Egypt, the Egyptian pharaoh. In Jesus, it was under Rome. Number two, disobedience of authority brings on violence to children. Do you remember the story? So in the story of Moses, um, they had been living, uh, after Joseph, they'd been living in, in Egypt, and uh, a, the Pharaoh changes hands. And this, same, this new Pharaoh isn't as familiar with these people, and he's a little bit concerned because they're pretty big in number. If they wanted to make an attempt on him 
or his, or his, uh, his nation, they could. So he starts trying to trim their numbers. And he tells the midwives of Israel, say, if it's a baby, if it's a girl, let it go. If it's a baby boy, kill it. And the midwives disobey. They, uh, they, and they tell the, the Pharaoh that, uh, well, our, uh, our ladies aren't like the ladies of Egypt. They're robust and they, uh, they give birth before we even get there. Sly boots, those ladies. But their disobedience causes his anger. And he says, kill all kids under two. Right? Look at Jesus. The wise men are supposed to come back to Herod. He says, hey, come back and tell me where this, uh, where this Messiah is going to be born because I want to worship him, liar. So they don't. The angel tells them to go and they disobey. They do not go back. And what happens? Kids under two. Right? Because he wants that Messiah dead. Escape from threat. Uh, Moses is uh, floated on the Nile uh, to the Pharaoh's palace in Egypt. He finds uh, safety in Egypt. When Jesus' family leaves to escape from Herod, where do they go? Egypt. They both pass through water before the mission of leading their people out of oppression. Where does Moses cross? Red Sea. That's the Exodus, right? Red Sea parts, Moses goes through. He leads the people out of their Egyptian oppression towards where God has promised. Jesus as well upon his baptism coming up out of that water starts his public ministry leading all peoples out of oppression. Both will face temptation. Uh, Moses and the people of Israel will spend 40 years in the wilderness and fail at that. Jesus, we'll talk about next week, spends 40 days in the wilderness and succeeds under that same temptation. And finally, both give law, Torah. So in um, Moses gives what we otherwise refer to as the Mosaic law. Here's how we live. We are a new nation. Here's how we live. Jesus does that same thing in, in the same pattern. You see him baptized. You see him tempted. You see him on a mountain. And then he gives a sermon on the mount. And we know how we should live. So the parallels there, I mean, you, they could be coincidence. It's not where I'm at. Those are parallels. It's fulfilling something. It's a story that not, Matthew is not just relaying. It's a story that God is telling. This is, a, this is my son. He is a king. He is a Messiah. And he is leading a new people a new nation from oppression. Deuteronomy 18, this is Moses talking about what that will be. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. See, even Moses is in his direction, leading people out of the oppression of Egypt, is still pointing to Jesus to say he will lead all peoples out of all nations from this oppression. You know, this is is kind of a cool, I thought that was neat. So Mount Nebo was where uh, Moses died. Um, he wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. He died on Mount Nebo. Um, looking this direction, this is, uh, this is the top of Mount Nebo, um, to your, it'll be your right, you can see the Dead Sea, and a little bit beyond that, you're going to see the Jordan River. Um, it is in that area of the Jordan River by Jericho where Jesus was baptized. It was, just, it was kind of a cool image for me when you're talking about Deuteronomy and you're looking where Moses is pointing. All this is still pointing to Jesus as the prophet. And you get this image of Moses being able to stand at this place and know that after some years have passed, he would have been able to look upon where Jesus was baptized, and he carries forward what God started in the nation of Israel. 
That's a long, cool story. And I thought that was, that was a pretty cool image for me. Um, it, because you see that continuance of what God is doing through his people and all people. So here's the deal. Why did Jesus get baptized? That's a big question, right? Why? I think it's a matter of identity. I think it's identity. In Matthew, it says to fulfill all righteousness. Now I stared at that for a long time. I'm like, fulfill all righteousness? Like, I, get, I know all those words individually, right? Fulfill, got it, all, good, righteousness, solid. And then I stared at it and I said, I don't get it. Fulfill all righteousness. And I stared at it for a while and I typed it into the Google and that's a mistake, but I did it. And there's 50 jack and apes who don't know what fulfill all righteousness means. They gave it some kind of shot. And I thought, this is, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. I've heard some really crazy answers to that. But you know what makes sense to me? Looking at the identity of Jesus to fulfill all righteousness is to say that Jesus got baptized to weave together the strands of the covenant of God that says, I will make the wrongs right. I will send a Messiah, a king, and where Israel has failed, my son will succeed. That's a fulfillment. Here's what I was promising. Here's what I said was going to happen. And in his baptism, it is not all happening there, but is revealed to us in his identity that it is Jesus that fulfills all that righteousness. That I get. That makes a lot of sense to me in his identity. So in light of this, the question is, can we understand more of who we are? What is our identity in terms of baptism? So in our baptism, our identity is also revealed, confirmed, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, of the kingdom of God. And that's, that's a big question, right? What does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom of God? Who are you if that is your identity? Where are you here? What does God have for you? Those are big questions, right? It's all, it's all tied in to our identity. Who are we? So here's some things I think we can take away from understanding Jesus's identity in his baptism how that translates to what that means in ours. What's our identity? Number one, part of our identity as citizens of the kingdom of God is we submit to the authority of King Jesus. See, the thing is, if Jesus is the king and we are joining his kingdom and we are bringing people to baptism and all they know is what they get, not what they're giving up, not who they are serving, I think we've missed it. I think we've missed it. See, if baptism is only for salvation, that's still your kingdom. That's you being king of your kingdom that says, I will do what I want, and that sure looks good over there. I'll also take some of that for the benefit of my kingdom. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying it isn't that. I'm saying that's not all of it. We've, we've marginalized it a little bit and made it something about what I take, what I get for me, not about what I give up. I don't know how deeply you guys have been studying the gospel lately, but that is not the impression I get of reading the story of Jesus about everything that I get. It's a lot about what I'm giving up. Jesus' identity as king says he is the king. We are in his kingdom. And part of our identity is is we submit to the king. It is not about me. And it is not about my kingdom. We have to be careful not to marginalize that and make it just about what is for us. Dave Herrick uh, Herrick Herrick and I were talking about this this week. And I had something I thought was pretty sweet. Uh, when I was describing this particular item. And then Dave Herrick said something way sweeter, so I stole it. Um, Because what he said was, because baptism is always, um, it's coupled with repentance, right? Repent and be baptized. And so when we talk about repentance, say, when we repent, we forsake all other loyalty, country, family, spouse, every vow, 
honor and resource we have is given to Christ to use or discharge as he sees fit. We are called to turn traitor to all we held dear and betray every relationship redeemable only as Christ sees fit. That's Christ as a king. That's Christ as a king. Second bit of our identity that I think we can take from Jesus' baptism is that we accept and live out the identity that he has established for those who live in the kingdom. I told you, we were talking about giving of, of law, giving of Torah. See, Jesus reestablished something. He sat down when he was in the Sermon on the Mount and said, this is, how, this is who we are. This is your identity in my kingdom. And sometimes we make the mistake of we, we see Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and we see that stuff extrapolated by Paul. And the way that we think of it is, is like, well, God, you did something good for me. We make it a trade. Thanks for the salvation. I'll try to do these good, for, good things for you. I'll help these people for you. Thanks, God. I feel like that's, I think, feel like we're missing it in that. This isn't a thanks, God, for doing those things for me. I'll do something for you. I don't feel like how he works. This is part of our identity, it's who we are. And the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, we talk about being merciful and persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And when we say yes, we mean yes. And when we say no, we mean no. And later on, when we feed the poor and when we clothe the naked, those aren't options. Those aren't check boxes. Those aren't, here, God, I'll all the cart these things that you've asked for because it makes you happy. His grace makes him happy. His grace to you makes him happy. This, however, is your identity. This is who we are as citizens in the kingdom of God. And I think sometimes we fight that. We fight that. When we want to pick and choose those things out, then it does not now become who we are. We haven't changed, really. That's still us ruling over our kingdom, picking and choosing a transaction with Jesus that says, thanks for the salvation, I fed a guy. That don't feel right to me. That doesn't sound like the identity that he's given us. It's our identity. It's who we are. Number three, part of our identity is we actively participate in the mission of the kingdom. I love this. Oh, man, I love this. See, when the world fell, there was always God standing there and says, this will be made right. Satan does not win this. Sin does not dominate this. This will be made right. And starting this covenant with Abraham through today until he returns, we are part of that work. We are part of that mission that says we set the wrongs right We are part of setting the captives free. Why? Because that's what his kingdom does. And we are citizens of that kingdom. Now, that's all predicated on who he is. You can't do any of that without him. That's the truth. But our identity as citizens of the kingdoms of God, excuse me, kingdom of God, says we do the work of the kingdom. And the work of the kingdom is setting the captives free. And it's setting the wrongs right. And that's an awesome mission. If we need inspiration on how to live, remember what you're called to. And not only called to, but capable of. That's the work of the Holy Spirit right there. That's what that's for. It's because you can't do that on your own. You need his kingdom working full force with the Holy Spirit. And then those wrongs get set right. And the captives get set free. And the work of the kingdom gets done. Finally, we share in the bounty of the kingdom. This is an awesome part of our identity. We share in the bounty of the kingdom. Yeah, that's salvation. You bet it is. That's what comes in the kingdom. We are saved. We get to experience true joy. 
We get to have a relationship with the king. I don't, my mind goes to, I, I only understand kings well in like medieval stuff. Um, but like you can't just walk into the throne room of the king unannounced. Hey, it's me. <laughs> but you can do that with our king. We have a direct relationship with the king and we have the Holy Spirit. What did John ask for? You remember he said uh, Jesus wanted uh, John to baptize him and he says, no, no, I want you to baptize me. What does he want? What did he say Jesus brings with him? The Holy Spirit and fire. What does John want? He wants the Holy Spirit. The very thing that we have. Think of uh, John as like the last of the, of the camel's hair belt wearing prophets. Sometimes we look back and we say, hey man, I wish I was like those guys. God just talked to them. He just said, hey, here's the deal. Here's what I want you to do. Here's where I want you to go. Here's, what I, here's how you're supposed to be. And we look back and say, boy, I wish, I wish sometimes God would just talk to me like that. That would be great. But the guy that has that experience, what does he want? He wants what you have. He wanted the Holy Spirit. Maybe there's a disconnect in there somewhere. Maybe you guys feel it in your lives. I think I do. I do. Is I feel like um, sometimes like, I'm no, I don't know. I don't know if I have the Holy Spirit. Like, there's things in my head that I don't want there. And there's things that I do that I'm embarrassed about. And there's ways that I behave. I'm like, look, what is this? Who behaves like this? Not a citizen of the king. Not someone living under the Holy Spirit. Where does that come from? And I think, I, I think, through kind of the stuff that we've been talking about today, I think I know where and why I struggle with that. And it's, it's generally because what I'm trying to do is fight for my own kingdom and borrow the Holy Spirit to help with some things that I'd like to see gotten done. And then it's not about my identity. It's still about me doing what I want to do in the kingdom that I own. And I can borrow some salvation from God and I can borrow some Holy Spirit help me today for the things that I want. I think that's where it comes from, for me. I think there's a disconnect and I'm not fighting for my identity in light of the identity of Jesus. I'm straight up fighting for my identity. Who do I want to be? What will, what will, what will define me and i'm not opposed to assist from the holy spirit but ultimately i'm still regulating who i'm going to be i think that and i think that's where the fight comes from to be honest with you i think that's where that stuff comes from is we've misunderstood our identity we're still fighting for our own see allegiance to a kingdom to a king isn't a passive thing you're not just saying that you agree with jesus like i I don't know where anywhere else that the word allegiance is defined that way like where do your allegiances lie I agree with my wife. We like string cheese. Like, is that what it means? I agree? Thumbs up? It sounds good? When you're put to your allegiance, it's an action. It means something is associated with, Mike, I will die for that. I am, that is where my allegiance is. Jesus has allegiance to his kingdom and those that are in it, and he died for that. That's allegiance. He didn't just say, I agree, Ben. I love it. It's not a passive thing, that allegiance. There was a, there's a story, um, quick story, um, that I think is, is, helps us understand that baptism, I think, a little bit more. Um, there was a pastor that was in India, and he was being persecuted by uh, Hindu extremists. And I laugh at the Hindu extremists, because it's not the image I come up when I think Hindu extremists. Uh, but anyway, they showed up to this guy, um, and they said, look, renounce Christ or we're going to kill you. And he said, no, I can't do that. I said, well... It stands. And so they left. They came back next week and he was preparing to die. And they knocked on the door and they said, look, man, last time, renounce Christ or you're a dead man. We will kill you. They left, came back a week later. They knocked on the door and again, he'd pretty much prepared for his own death. 
They knocked on the door, and he opens it up, and the guy says, tell me more about this Jesus. And he said, he had a, the guy had had a dream, the extremist and his, uh, his friends, had had a, the guy had had a dream like the night before, uh, and Jesus had appeared to him and said, do not persecute my man, and you go tell him what it means to follow me. And so that's what he did. He shows up, and like all these guys are, are talking to him, and they're listening to this pastor talk, and they say, look, where do we get baptized? We need to get baptized. And we want you to baptize us in the Ganges River. And he said, you know, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with Hinduism, but like Ganges is like a god, okay? You don't dunk a guy in the god. And the only place to, accessible to Ganges is open in front of all these people who had known these guys and like known what they believe and they know exactly what it means to be baptized by that Christian pastor. And they said, uh, <laughs> and they said well, that's where we want to be baptized. He said, you know what's going to happen, right? Like they'll kill you. You're defaming their God. And you're, you're turning your allegiance completely over in front of all these people. And the guy looked at him and said, is there, is there any other way? We don't see any other way. This seems like this is the answer. That's what we're going to do. And the, the truth is, is that when that guy goes down to the river and he's baptized, changing allegiances from the very God entity that he used to worship in front of everybody that knows them, does he ask questions like, am I saved? That's a foolish question in that regard. It's so much more than that. That guy just gave up everything he had, as did the other 12 guys with him. They're not asking that question. They're not asking, did I go under far enough? We run a risk of marginalizing things, making less than what they are, and fighting over the middle. It's so much more than that. The picture of baptism is so much more than that. Who Jesus is is so much more than that. And our identity through him and what he has done is so much more than that. And we need to live in the more. Not the tangents. Not the small things. I, they're impo- Don't get me wrong. Like I get those discussions are important. I get them. But what I'm saying is we always, we, I feel like we're missing it at times. We're missing those discussions in light of what everything else means. And we miss them. Where our identity truly lies and that's in jesus and where his identity comes from let's pray